Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. Father God, you you speak life into us. Your voice your voice calls us to life. We hear your voice. Every one of us has heard your voice. We may not have named it as such, but we've heard your voice echoing in our imagination, in our longing, in our deepest hope. Father, we, we see your handiwork in our lives, and we know that you are breathing life into us. And I pray that as Mark speaks... You would breathe life into every body, every soul. May freedom songs resound from this place because of what you are doing in us this morning. Let your kingdom come. Bring joy to your servant as he speaks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Johnny. <clears throat> I've thought of many opening jokes for this moment and yesterday. Not all of them are appropriate. I'll let you use your own imaginations. Um, but as I was thinking about Remembrance Sunday, it's not funny, it reminded me of the Kohima epitaph, which was written by John Maxwell Edmonds, actually in World War I rather than in World War II. But it reads like this. When you go home... Tell them of us and say, for your tomorrow, we gave our today. And I thought of this because I think this is what Jesus did. He traded the eternal today to step down into time in a moment in our past to alter all our tomorrows, to set each one of us free. And I tell you that because I think that... um, you know, I made a one small step for a man, one giant leap for white publicly educated schoolboys yesterday when I went to a women's conference. There you are. That's one of the inappropriate opening lines. Um, <laughs> but I think that perhaps this is actually why God called me to speak. Because he's won freedom for each of us, each woman and each man. But the enemy comes to steal, to kill and destroy. And the enemy achieves that by lying to you. And he has done an utter number on women. And that's what I'm going to talk about. There are lots of messages around about what it means to be a woman and about what the Bible says about being a woman, and a lot of them are not correct, including some of the ways that men have actually translated the Bible, which I am going to get to, to obscure the role and gift of women. Some of them are not correct, and some of them are lies from the pit of hell, and they have to be exposed and challenged. Because imagine how difficult and how painful it must be. You might have had this experience, you might be having to imagine it for someone you know. 
But imagine how painful it must be to come to the orchard, hear a message of liberation, encounter the Spirit, hear God's voice speak to you, and then go home and sit with a Bible that you have been told supports only or mainly your silence and submission. Or even just to hear church leaders imply, as Elizabeth Bear Siegel puts it, that you should be beautiful and be quiet. When I started preparing this, I didn't know how prevalent this tendency to lie is. If you spend any time with the Orchard Podcast, or indeed reading the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus has what my wife, whose name is Ellie, in case you encounter her, she's not just my wife, um, but if I am her husband. Um, It's easy to look like a feminist when you're on the stage. Ask her what I'm like at home. <laughs> if you spend any time with the Orchard Podcast, you'll know that Jesus has what Ellie describes as a special kindness for women. But there's one instance that I want to highlight from the Gospels that have passed me by before. And I want to highlight this to you because I think it shows you that Jesus' attitude towards women is systemic. Okay? We're going to go to Matthew 12. Uh, In Matthew 12, Jesus' mother and brothers come looking for him, and someone tells him that they're outside. Jesus says this, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice that Jesus clearly has female disciples among the group which he is willing to refer to as his disciples. That is not standard practice for a Jewish rabbi at this point in history, but it does appear to be Jesus's standard practice. And I think this is actually historically true. So biblical scholars, they separate between the story that Mark is telling and the things that Jesus actually did. Because no one held a gun, sorry, Matthew, to Matthew's head and forced him to write the story the way that he did. We know this because there are four canonical gospels and they're not identical. So the writers are choosing what they put in, right? The writers are choosing what they put in. They don't have to write it this way. But Matthew doesn't present this as a one-off, a set piece where Jesus the politician thought it'd be really useful to have some women here. This looks like Jesus' standard practice. It's not useful to Matthew to put this into his gospel because if Jesus is more manly, then Jesus is more acceptable. Your Greco-Roman gender categories are manly and unmanly, not masculine and feminine, manly and unmanly. And the thing that they're interested about in that discourse is whether you are an unmanly man or a manly man, because we all know that women are just monstrous men anyway. That's the culture, right? Matthew doesn't need to put this in. If Matthew doesn't put this in, he lives an easier life. He does put it in. Why? Probably because that's what Jesus was like. Probably because Jesus actually had a special kindness for women. I was so far off piece, this is going to take me so much longer than I planned. This is Jesus' standard practice. One of the things that I found so frustrating, the reason that I actually care about this, is that men have always known this. They just lie to you. 
Do you know how they lie to you? They get around it by making the women in the Gospels into exceptional women. Right. How many sermons have you heard that talked to you about Peter and told you how ordinary he was? Seriously. People laughed yesterday. I'm genuinely angry about this. I'm genuinely, because it is a lie. Peter was a fisherman. So were all the other disciples. They're all ordinary. We can be like them as long as we're men because all the women were exceptional and you couldn't possibly be like them. Somehow you're not special enough. Mind blown. It's a lie. You see, throughout Scripture, what actually happens is that God actually goes out of his way to encounter and empower women, even though he frustratingly works within rather than upending patriarchal cultures. But it's been hidden on so many occasions. I want you to look with me at what Paul writes about Phoebe in Romans 16, verses 1 to 2. He writes this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Cancray, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints. Now, it's disappeared off this. No, it hasn't. It's here. Look at this. Look at that A up there. Look at that. Read that well. Do you know why that A exists? That A exists because biblical translators, post-Reformation mainly, decided that Phoebe couldn't possibly be a deacon because she was a woman. And so they translated it as servant. And so my Bible today has got an asterisk. This is the academic standard Bible. It's the NRSV. I didn't make this translation up myself and stick an asterisk on it. She's got an asterisk because she is a woman. That is the only reason. Again, mind blown. There's a reason that there's a note against deacon, that little A. It's for centuries that men have translated this in all manner of ways, such as servant or helper, because they did not want to admit that Phoebe held an authoritative leadership role at Kencrate. And it gets worse because the scholarly consensus is that when Paul writes Romans 16 verses 1 to 2, he's saying, this person who I have asked to deliver this letter, they are kosher, they are good, you should rate them. Now, delivering a letter in antiquity is not the same as today. You don't put it in an envelope and send it in the Royal Mail. Letters are composed by a ministry team They don't think of authorship the way that we do. And they're carried by someone who's helped to write the letter and who knows how to communicate it so that they can stand up and deliver it so they can do the bit that I'm doing now. Right? Think about that. Paul, by reputation, wants women to be silent in church. By reputation, Romans is the mature exposition of Paul's uh, theology. This is where Paul states his gospel most clearly. Paul asked a woman to preach Romans. Let that sink in. Even when God becomes incarnate in Christ, he does it in this shocking way that foregrounds Mary's role. So in Luke's birth narrative, Mary is even given the final word in a really pronounced contrast to Zechariah the priest who is silenced by the angel. When the angel comes to Zechariah and says, you're going to have a baby, Zechariah asks questions and gets silenced, struck dumb for the period of the pregnancy. When Mary, when the angel comes to Mary, 
it's very different. She gets the final word. The, the angel waits for her. Let me read a couple of verses. We're going to Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Mary gets the last word. Remember, no one has held a gun to Luke's head and said, You have to write this this way. The angel can show up, speak, and leave. The angel doesn't. Mary's last word is, May it be to me according to your word. That's the Greek there. Because, is the verb here, and it is in what is called the middle voice. The English doesn't have an equivalent for the middle voice, so it's kind of hard to see this. As Amy Peeler um, who has written a fantastic book called Women and the Gender of God, which I've learned a lot from, which is in here. As she puts it, this is a territory that is neither active nor passive. It is instead reflexive. The action is initiated by God, but Mary permits its impact. God gives Mary that much power. Mary puts her body, her womb, and later her arms and breasts as she nurses Jesus at God's disposal. It is her willingness that makes this birth possible. I want to stress this because Luke could have Gabriel turn up, announce, and leave. God could have blessed a normal union, and Matthew's genealogy shows us that God can even work through the brutal Histories of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's unnamed wife. It's not that God's afraid to go there. But instead, Luke emphasizes Mary's engagement in the process. God awaits her, yes, to proceed. And isn't that like a divine power, which was the theme from yesterday, which shows itself by laying its life down for others? that gives its today for their tomorrow. You know, when I saw this in Mary, I was shocked because I hadn't seen it before, even though I know about this pattern of divine and human action, and I spent 11 years studying the Bible. This pattern of divine and human action is actually there at Pentecost, which I, one chapter of my book focuses on Pentecost, so I spent a very long time thinking about this. The believers start speaking, and the Holy Spirit is somehow the cause of the speech. So these words that come out, the Holy Spirit is doing them in some important way. But God chooses to do this with and in and through the willing engagement of the believers' lungs, tongues, and lips. He waits for their yes. Paul picks up the same dynamic when he tells the Philippians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I've taught on both of those texts multiple times in multiple settings. What I hadn't realized is that Luke presents Mary as the archetype of this kind of engagement with God. Hers is humanity's first response to the revelation of God in Christ. And it displays the pattern for all the others, this middle voice. And Mary does this distinctively because of and not in spite of her womanhood. 
she chooses to accept the enormous risk of bearing a bastard in a culture in which she could be stoned for that decision and the biblical authors go on to highlight the precariousness of her situation. Matthew turns her into a refugee who runs to Egypt. That's the risk she takes. She knows that. That's why God waits for her, yes. I think, maybe. I mean, like, I'm like slightly beyond what I've actually researched. <laughs> she uses her power and lays her life down for the sake of salvation. Does that sound like anyone else? Is it any wonder people started worshipping her, even though that's too far? She bears Christ in the world, and this is what you and me are called to as well. I said that yesterday, and I'm saying the same thing today, because women are frequently asked to identify with male characters in biblical narratives, like, we're all like David, John, Moses, Abraham. Who's the archetype of the fundamental human response to Jesus Christ, the revelation of God in Christ? It's Mary. We're all like Mary. And if you don't feel like you can identify that, identify with Mary as a man, then I, honestly, it's time to get over that. Because you and I are called to bear Christ in the world. As the medieval German mystic, Meister Eckhart, puts it, you know, I needed someone to back me up. Um, we are all meant to be mothers of God, for God is always needing to be born. What is this? Everyone is an agent of the kingdom. God always needs to be born in me. And God always needs to be born in my world. Mary's story stands as an archetype at the beginning of the gospel narrative. And throughout the gospels, women play important roles, but I haven't got enough time to tell. In Mark's gospel, I want to focus on this and then Paul and then pray. In Mark's gospel, which is widely seen as the first gospel to have been written... So this is the first person to write a story of Jesus. When you get to the end of the gospel, who knows about the fact that Jesus has been raised? The women, and only the women. That's a shocking choice. Why? Because they can't testify in a court of law. Mark leaves the veracity of Jesus' resurrection hanging on the testimony of women who are fleeing from the tomb terrified. And he's all right with that. And if you believe that Scripture is inspired, then God's all right with that. God trusts his story to these women. God trusts them to be the authoritative witnesses to this story. They are the apostles to the apostles. It's shocking that Mark leaves this story hanging. Again, no one put a gun to his head and made him write it this way, and we know that because Matthew, Luke, and John don't. You can write it differently, and he chose not to. This matters. This really matters. I think this really matters. You see, God trusts his own story to these women. And when he does this, he breaks out, as in the resurrection, of any societal structure that would claim it can hold him. 
Mark's ending tells you that, as Donald Jewell puts it, Jesus is out, on the loose, on the same side of the door as the women and the readers. And this, really, I think, is the shape of the gospel. It's the story of a God who will not be trapped in the boxes we want him to work in, but whose kingdom utterly obliterates conventional wisdom and every value system that has ever tried to squash you into its mold. And scripture witnesses to the astonishing inbreaking of this power. And that's what Paul tries to do in his letters, which is where I want to look for our final couple of minutes. I'm not going after any of the difficult passages. We can talk about them another time, and there are plenty of good books on that subject. But Beverly Gaventer has written an excellent book called Our Mother St. Paul, in which she argues that the right question when you come to Paul's writings is not, what does Paul's interpretation of the gospel permit women to do, and what does the gospel prohibit women from doing, but what is God doing? in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and what does that gospel mean for the lives of women? It's about God. What is God doing? It matters what you think God is like, and it matters what you think the gospel is. And Paul's gospel destroys every system of worth that came before it and stands opposed to it. It's serious. It's disruptive. It goes so far as to change who it is that is living your life. Seriously, when Paul writes Galatians in chapter 1, he says that when God revealed his son in me, he revealed his son in Paul, the result was, chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, that Paul died. He was crucified. He no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And now, when you see the artist formerly known as Paul, what you encounter is Christ crucified. That's what he thinks the Galatians saw. Chapter 3, verse 1. Was not Christ publicly portrayed before your eyes as crucified? Who did that? Paul did that. Paul did that how? By walking around in his body, talking. Because he doesn't live anymore. He's been crucified with Christ. This is what Paul thinks happens for everybody who encounters this gospel. And that's why in Galatians 3 verse 28, there is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. As Beverly Gaventa puts it, as the gospel's arrival obliterates the law, it also obliterates all those other places with which people identify themselves. Even the most fundamental places of ethnicity, economic and social standing, and gender. The only location available for those grasped by the gospel is in Christ. The only location available for you, if you've been grasped by the gospel, man, woman, or child, is in Christ. This is the gospel. God is on the loose. He is out of the tomb, on the other side of the door, on the side of the women, and us hearing this. The divine power has erupted within the world and it will continue to work itself out until Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. There is no safe 
place to stand. There's no self-contained island where you get to offer God a reasonable bit of your life. What does it mean for women? It means that God wants it all. He comes to you like he came to Mary, asking for your willing engagement to bear Christ in the world. He bursts out of the tomb to stand on the same side of the door as you, trusting you to tell his story to a world which is desperate for hope, despite your fear and your inadequacy and the fact that you shouldn't be able to like the women who he trusted at the end of Mark's gospel or despite whatever sin-sick story has been foisted onto you, whatever lie the enemy told you, that's how he comes to you. Because if you don't do that, then I'm the poorer for it. Please hear that. I know I stand up here sometimes. But if you don't do this, then I am the poorer for it. If you don't lay down your life as a channel for God's divine power to flow through you, then I miss out. What does it mean for women? It means all of that. And I think it roughly means something similar for men. Because the only location available for those grasped by the gospel is in Christ. You belong here. You belong here, in Christ. So whatever's been said to you that has hurt and harmed and silenced and shattered and bowed down, and broken you. Whatever lie the enemy told you in the mouth of a man, whatever it is that comes up in your head that tells you you can't witness to Christ's story in the world, that tells you that you don't get to bear Jesus because of something to do with who you are, I break that in the name of Jesus. Because it's not all right. And it's not true. And I need you free. Because we're the church. We're the army of God in the world. And we need all all the daughters and all the sons to be free. So they can rise up and play their part. I'd love to pray. (laughs) Would Would you maybe stand with me?